Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. What about Money for Nothing, Dire Straits? Oh, very nice. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, that's good, too. <laughs> okay, well, with that in mind, David, why don't you kick yeah. things off? Okay, I'm going to start uh, in two seconds. Everybody ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. Hello and welcome to Alpha Chat. I'm David Johan and I'm joined by Isabella Kaminska in Geneva. Hi, Izzy. Hi, everybody. Um, our guest today is Scott Skirm, a leading repo and securities financing expert and author of The Money News, John Corzine and the Collapse of Emma Global. It's kind of timely having him on because uh, there is a tiny bit of news out of the civil trial, which is shockingly Corzine rejects all allegations that he acted with gross negligence. Um, it's not shocking. Uh, but it is a really good entry into Scott's book because he makes kind of the point, or you make the point, Scott, that um, the media has sensationalized many of the wrong points about this case and about um, MF Global's collapse. Maybe we didn't pay enough attention to some of the more systemic issues and some of the things that were flashing red for a long time. This was maybe less a bankruptcy fueled by a bad trade on European sovereign debt and more a story of bad risk management, ego, and, you know, John Corzine building an empire. Is that fair? On the surface, as you said, it's very much portrayed as as a story of a of a trade gone bad. But in reality, in depth in the story, is that you know there were a lot of um, issues that contributed to um, MF Global's collapse, and a lot of mistakes that were made by John Corzine, and there was certainly a, a lot of things that could have done better. And I think at this point now is that. Regulators and the trustees are at the point where they've gone through the records of MF Global and they've, they've gone through the business and they've looked at the mistakes that were made and now they're looking for somewhat of a scapegoat or somebody to blame. And I, I think that's where we are with a civil complaint that was filed against John Corzine and Edith O'Brien. So I guess it's coming across as a bit of a witch hunt. And uh, what I find interesting is that in the book, obviously, you talk a lot about corporate culture within MS Global. And actually, you start the story back with the Refco acquisition. So I was just wondering, like, could you explain how actually, in some ways, this predates even what, um, the entry point of Corzine? In 2006, there was a company that was an MS Global company um, called Man Financial, uh, which was part of the three companies of the original Man Financial group. And Man Financial was hunting around for an acquisition in the United States because they had been mostly based in London and they were looking to expand into the United States and acquire a futures business here. So as it turns out, just around the time when they were looking for an acquisition and looking to grow, Refco had gone bankrupt and there was fraud involved in the case and there was what they call round-trip loans and uh, there was, uh, Refco had, had just um, done an IPO where they, they raised a lot of money. There was fraud, and um, there were three bidders for the for the Refco business. And Man Financial was 
as it seemed at the time, the one that was lucky enough to purchase the business. When uh, Man Financial purchased uh, Refco, they inherited the, the alternative method, which is one reason why the, the futures cash number went from um, it increased so much um, after they went under. Yeah, so you had this company, Refco, with uh, another kind of shell game cash situation, but then you had MF Global. And right. even before Corzine arrived, he was having risk and capital issues. And in many ways, that's why Corzine was, well, that was his window in, wasn't it? Because you had this kind of problem with rogue trading within MF Global that allowed Corzine to come in. And it was at the same time they needed capital as an IPO, which also made... MF Global kind of vulnerable to credit rating agencies and put so much pressure on Corzine. Oh, absolutely, David. And it's kind of an interesting story there was that Evan Dooley was the MF Global rogue trader who at nighttime on his laptop computer in the Memphis MF Global office uh, was able to uh, attempt to corner the overnight wheat futures trading market. And, and not only did he, he, he do it once, he actually did it twice. Um, which led to some headlines and a $141 million loss. And um, what happened, that was actually the um, February of 2008. In March of 2008, Bear Stearns had, had gone under, and there was a lot of pressure on, on independent uh, brokers uh, in the U.S. And after the Evan Dooley uh, rogue trading incident and pressure in the markets from Bear Stearns, um, it, it brought in J.C. Flowers to make an investment in MF Global, and that investment, which of course J.C. Flowers thought it was the best investment deal, they one of the best deals they, they had negotiated in a long time. J.C. Flowers was a former Goldman Sachs uh, partner, and that investment ultimately led to um, his J.C. Flowers' relationship with um, John Corzine, and John Corzine and coming into MF Global two years later. I think one of the other things that struck me was you, you really don't seem to think John Corzine is a particularly bad guy. You know, John Corzine certainly made a lot of mistakes at MF Global. There, there, there is no doubt about that. And I think, you know, somebody who came from being the senior partner at Goldman to being senator of New Jersey, governor of New Jersey... I, you know, I, I think they had a lot of faith in themselves, and I think John Corzine had, had a large ego. And, you know, as one MF Global um, executive told me, quote, at Goldman Sachs, John Corzine was challenged. At MF Global, John Corzine was worshipped. And that created a whole um, culture within an MF Global where John Corzine pretty much did what he want, wanted. You know, if he wanted to spec trade, um, he had a proprietary trading group that he was running and, and he was trading all day long. If the risk manager, Mike Roseman, was not approving John Corzine's trading limits to increase them, uh, John Corzine arranged for Mike Roseman to be moved out of the company. That was a fascinating um, so moment, I thought, the removal of Roseman when they were trying to get these repo to maturity trades, like the limits lifted, and they had this guy who was brought in to say no. And then they got in a yes, man. It just really solidified what Corzine was in the firm. And I've, I've worked with Mike Lozman before, and I, I know him personally. And, you know, I've, I discussed at MF Global how Mike Lozman, he believed in, he believed in saying no. Uh, so he was a risk manager that was very tight on risk approvals. Now, he gave people 
risk numbers and risk limits. And a lot of time you had to sit down with him and, 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 and negotiate and, and, and discuss them. But he was, he was the overall company's risk manager. And when he started saying no to John Corzine, um, you know, he created a lot of conflict and Mike Roseman gave some larger limits. But at one point he had decided that he had estimated that with the repo to maturity book, that if you take their positions, which this is probably um, the end of 2010. And I wonder if you might um, just explain the repo to maturity trade, just for anyone who isn't familiar with it. So I can buy a bond from you, David, and I can sell a bond um, to Isabella. And I will have bought a bond, I will have sold a bond, um, hopefully I made money buying and selling, and once that transaction is completed, it, 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 it's over. It's just part of the just part of the records. Now, financial markets have changed a lot in the course of the past 20, 30, 40 years and have become more complicated where there's other ways of buying and selling securities. Um, certainly there's derivatives, and that, that can be a whole other story uh, and a whole, whole other question and, and discussion, but in terms of this aspect, in, in the repo market, you can also, instead of selling a bond to somebody, you can loan a, a bond to somebody. So let's say I bought a 10-year bond from you and I loaned it to Isabella overnight. Um, I would get that bond back the next day and I still owned it. So in a repo to maturity trade, let's say that I bought that same bond from you, David, and then I loaned it to Isabella until it matures. So in other words... You know, I've bought it, but I've loaned it to somebody else. I'm never getting it back because I've loaned it to somebody else until it matures. And when it matures, uh, they're going to have the bond and they're going to get paid from the issuer. So in a way, a repo to maturity trade is another way of selling a bond. Repo to maturity trades have been trades that people have been doing in the U.S. repo market for years and years and years. And primarily, it was always kind of an arbitrage trade that was done in the Treasury market and the agency market, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, AAA securities. And generally, it was done with, with securities that matured within a couple months. So in other words, if I bought a, a one-month U.S. Treasury from you, David, and loaned it to Isabella for a month, you know, the, the accounting rules um, were such that it was a AAA security it was a buy and a loan to maturity. It was considered an off-balance sheet item. So in other words, it was considered the equivalent of a sale. So that, you know, in AAA U.S. Treasuries and very short-term trades, um, that was considered a, a purchase and what they call it a true sale under accounting rules. So what happened in the MF Global story was that uh, John Corzine and the traders at MF Global took that trade not just one step further, but maybe two or three steps further. <laughs> so, so they noticed, um, and there are other people in the market too that noticed this trade also, but they, they weren't into it as big as John Corzine was. So at MF Global, they noticed that because of the European debt crisis and, and starting off with Greece, that there were a lot of European government bonds that were trading at really high yields uh, relative to historical levels. So, for example, the, the, the bonds of Spain and Portugal and Ireland and Italy 
all were trading with, with really high yields relative to where you can loan them out in the repo market. So they put together this trade so that they would buy the bonds from, you know, out in the market, and then MF Global repoed those bonds to maturity. So kind of like a buy and a sell, but instead of AAA U.S. Treasuries that they were trading, which was the traditional um, repo to maturity trade, they were dealing in AA, single-A European government debt. And instead of doing trades that were one month, two months at the most, they were going out for a year, uh, sometimes longer than, than a year. You know, right around the same time as in 2010, when MS Global was gearing up on these trades, there's also the ESFS. So if a country was having problems funding their debt, that uh, the, the ESFS would come in and, and help the country with the funding, which almost seemed like, you know, you had the, the debt of, let's say, Ireland, which, you know, up until that time had been, you know, pretty good uh, country sovereign debt, and then also had a backup facility from the European Union. So it, it really looked like these trades were what, what they call, you know, AAA risk-free free trades. They're sensible um, trades, essentially. Corsi oh, yeah, doing and, a good job as a fixed and, income trader. Oh, absolutely. And I think when John Corzine arrived at MF Global, MF Global had about Five hundred million in these trades on their books, and in, in European debt or in, um, in U.S. Treasuries? In European debt, European, okay. um, you know, in potentially both. I never got that number which, which side it was, but they definitely had about five hundred million on at the time. And and here's how the story goes: was that um, John Corzine had had gotten into MF Global, was there a few months, started up their proprietary trading group, and he noticed that there was a hole in their earnings, and basically the MF Global earnings at the time. Uh, they were they had been losing money and they continue to lose money. And John Corzine felt that he needed about 18 months to, to to get MF Global back on track and into profitability under his plan. And the rating agencies gave him approximately one year or so from, from when they, they sat down and had a meeting. So John Corzine realized he needed to have earnings or he needed at least, you know, stem the losses. Uh, John Corzine walked around to all, all the trading desks in New York. And he basically said, um, "I need, I need to get twenty million dollars a quarter. Do you have any ideas of how we can get there?" Um, <laughs> and of course, the, the, the financial markets at the time. This is 2010. You know, we didn't have booming financial markets. Uh, we were still recovering from the, the, the financial crisis in 2008, and. Um, there were not a lot of ideas of, of where to get that money really quickly in any really good trades. Uh, he stopped by the repo desk in New York. They had mentioned that the, the, the spreads in, in the U.S. repo market were pretty thin. And then he started going around to, to some of the trading desks in London. When he hit the repo desk in London, basically they said, you know, um, we do have a trade that can make a lot of money. The only problem is is we, we, we can't get our risk limits increased to add and to the size of the trade because Mike Roseman, the risk manager, won't won't increase our limits. Now, which, of course, you know, for Mike Roseman, you know, he had risk limits in place, and, you know, you have to have a risk limit. So then John Corzine looked at the trade a little further and looked at this European buying Irish bonds, repoing them to maturity, and, you know, realized, and, and I'll, I'll say myself, it was a really good trade. Conceptually, 
it, it was a great trade. You were locking in profits. You were theoretically putting trades on your balance sheet, but of course at the time it was a quote off balance sheet trade. So in other words, the, the repo to maturity part of it, the sale, was considered off balance sheets. In other words, accountants um, didn't cons- consider those assets or liability on a bank's balance sheet. So it was off balance sheet. It was in European sovereign debt, which nobody expected anybody to default, and it was able to, to make a good chunk of good chunk of money. So that that's it's, I mean, that's it takes, where it takes all the boxes in many ways. And the funny thing is, is and especially the fact that it could be off balance sheet. But then, like, what comes to my mind is that a you know the old adage that um, markets and stay irrational more longer than you can stay liquid, or in this, right. or in this case, um, you know, longer than you can meet margin calls, and also the fact that often arbitrages like that exist because people just can't afford to take them on. Absolutely, and you know what, what's really interesting here was that so we put together, as you said, all the pieces of the great trade, but but what was the downside? You know, what what was the one factor? That, that could sink you on this trade because there, there, there always is something. And the one factor was that mar- was margin call that, you know, when you purchase the bonds, you know, you own them and you're, you're susceptible to, to a default, to Ireland defaulting or Spain defaulting. But then on the repo to maturity side, LCH ClearNet, which is the central clear and counterparty um, for repo trades in, in Europe, these, these trades, so the repo part of it, the repo to maturity part, still exists. Like it's still a trade that MF Global had to do something for. So in other words, they had to mark to market that trade. So LCH ClearNet was housing that that leg of the trade, and there were margin calls to that trade. So as it turns out, in 2011, when the European debt crisis was really growing, and there was a, a lot of speculation that some of these countries could default. So, I mean, Ireland was, was the first that, that sold off. Was that as these bonds were, were selling off in price and the prices were declining, LCH ClearNet was calling more and more margin on the repo side of these trades. So, you know, if there's one thing that could destroy the profitability of the trade was that MF Global had to put up margin to cover the repo leg of this trade. Is, that, is that even at, destroying the profitability, though? Because, I mean, they'll get that back at maturity. It was, it was, it's a liquidity right. trap. Uh, yeah, sorry, carry on. Yeah, David, you, know, you can look at it two ways. If you want to look at it in a very simple sense, they would get all that money back at the end, and you know, it was really just money that they had to put up for, for a period of, of time where they just didn't have use of that capital. In a more complicated sense, you could say, well, you know, if they're using their capital for repo to maturity trades, then they weren't able to use that capital elsewhere in other businesses. So That's there's certainly an opportunity cost. And, and certainly, and here's an aspect I didn't put in the book, but, you know, as, as MF Global personnel reported to me, by September and October, right before MF Global went under, MF Global had, for example, a mortgage business and they needed so much capital for the repo to maturity trades that they weren't, the mortgage business was not allowed to, to carry inventory or carry positions, or, or if it was, it was just minimal because they knew that the repo to maturity trades were consuming so much of the company's capital that it was hurting other business lines and, 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 and preventing them from, from doing business and growth. So, what was originally supposed to be not a very balanced 
sheet intensive trade turned out to be very balance sheet intensive as uh, as the as it soured and it basically sucked up all the capital out of most of the rest of the business. If we sat down and said, you know, what was the one thing that you can trace back, you know, which uh, the, the main factor that contributed to MF Global's collapse and demise. You know, you know how they sometimes say, you know, they, the, the butterfly flaps its wings in Africa, and that adds to, you know, the hurricane that eventually hits the east coast of the United States because, you know, one little bit of extra wind, you know, added to more wind and everything, you know, like the, the whole butterfly effect. If there's one little thing that you can trace back, you know, what was what was that little butterfly wing start that caused a collapse? It was a change in an obscure accounting rule called FASB 140. And FASB 140 is the accounting rule, which is in the United States, it's called the true sale accounting. So in other words, as I was explaining the repo to maturity trade, that's the accounting rule that covers the repo to maturity trade. So in other words, the true sale rule is, is what's really a true sale. So, you know, with complex financial instruments these days, you know, the financial markets are much more complicated than just, you know, I buy a bond, I sell a bond. Now, there's a lot of ways to buy a bond. There's a lot of ways to sell a bond. So, you know, getting back to um, to the repo maturity, and when I was discussing that, when it was a AAA U.S. Treasury bond repoed to maturity for a month, that was considered a, a true sale. It's AAA securities, it's short-term. But what happened was MF Global took these bonds, you know, took it away from just AAA U.S. Treasuries and all of a sudden was dealing with securities that were AA, single-A rated, and there was technically some default risk there. And then also instead of for one month, you know, doing one-month trades, they were doing one-year trades. So what happened was that MF Global's accounting firm and regulators in March of 2011 started looking at the repo to maturity trades and went to MF Global and said, you know what, we're starting to interpret the true sale law a little bit different for your repo to maturity trades. And we've decided that repo to maturity in your circumstances is no longer a true sale. So in that instance, all those um, repo to maturity bonds that were off balance sheet for MF Global all of a sudden came back on their balance sheet at the end of March of 2011. And then what happened a couple months down the road, September passed and October hit, and then there was a Wall Street Journal article on October 17th which said, oh, by the way, did anyone notice that MS Global was undercapitalized in July? So in combination of that Wall Street Journal article, MS Global, days after that, issued their worst earnings report of down $191 million loss for mm. the quarter before that, and then that set off a whole chain of events, which was basically their their, their bankruptcy. They, they lost their liquidity, and, and, and everything that, you know, has been in the news happened right after that. So, so in a way, you know, it's that change and that little-known accounting rule had all these consequences just step-by-step, step, which, which you know, in a way was like the spark that caused the fire that burned down the house. I think. Um, and I, I think it was Bethany McLean that um, wrote one of the stories pointing that out. But D- David, you were going to say something. Oh no, I was just going to um, bring it back to the present a bit and start ask you about right. the um, the seg funds 
mess. I mean, because at this stage we're, you know, butterfly flaps at wings, we're into a liquidity crisis right. and kind of an intensely confusing time within MF Global. Um, what's your take on it? Do we blame Edith or John? Or So if I was going to blame somebody, now um, I would say, and I had this report from a couple MF Global personnel, and I remember specifically somebody telling me, you know, um, using customer seg funds intraday was allowed. And I said, I don't think you're allowed to touch customer seg funds ever. As it turns out, then, you know, when I, when I dug through the trustees reports and, and other information uh, about MF Global, it basically said, said so right there in one of the trustees reports. MF Global personnel believe that you could use customer seg funds intraday. So in other words, if you needed to wire out um, 500 million in cash and uh, maybe MF Global didn't have that on hand at 8.30 in the morning when the Fed wire opened, that they had money going in of customer seg accounts anyway. They could use some of the customer seg money to make their money wire in the beginning of the day. As long as that money was back in the customer seg accounts by the end of the day, because by the end of the day was when you know your, your reports were filed and when you printed reports for accountants and, and regulators. So, you know, certainly if I was going to look at um, problems at MF Global in terms of managerial problems, uh, would be the fact that I, I would dig through that. And, you know, you know, where did it come from that um, that um, same funds were allowed to be used during the day? Um, now, you know, it, what's really interesting with, with the seg funds, too, was, and, and this is pretty much what, what happened. If you assume that, you know, that is true, that MF Global, you know, personnel use their customer seg funds during the day, um, what happens during their bankruptcy week, basically the, the, the last full week in October of 2011, when MF Global is getting all sorts of margin calls from LCH ClearNet, JP Morgan Chase, Bank of New York, repo funding counterparties, and they're all asking for more margin because everybody knows that Lehman and Bayer and all these other companies went bankrupt. And if you're going to liquidate your, your transactions with, with another company, you want to have as much cushion as you can. So you want to accumulate as much margin as you possibly can if you think somebody's going to go under. So all of MF Global's counterparties started asking them for more and more margin. And as they were sending out more, more and more margin to their clearing banks, central clearing counterparties, it was draining MF Global's liquidity. It was draining their resources. They didn't have enough cash. So what happened was that when MF Global personnel grabbed some of the customer money to send out for margin, they expected that there was other margin coming in from another counterparty you know, later in the day. But as it turns out, once you got to about the Wednesday before they went bankrupt, that money wasn't coming back. In other words, they kept mm-hmm. sending out margin for margin calls, but there wasn't Nobody was giving them any margin. So that's yeah. when the whole started to develop in the customer seg funds was basically that, that whole procedure that they have where they were, where they had been using um, intraday funds. So that's interesting because A, um, well, there is obviously a gray area here that they should not have been using the seg funds anyway. But the fact of the matter is, is that the sink coal appeared because people were not, you know, they weren't, it wasn't being recycled back, which puts a lot right. of 
I guess, culpability on the part of the CCPs and uh, the custodians who were on the other side of that, would you say? It's interesting because there's, there's a very specific instance, which was a SEG fund um, transfer on Friday. And that's pretty much the, the most well-documented SEG fund transfer. And there's a little backstory to it, too, um, where it's very interesting because the day before in London was when um, J.P. Morgan Chase had a large margin call for MF Global in London. And MF Global in London, it was Thursday before MF Global went bankrupt, they decided, okay, you know, this is, this is a crisis. We need our liquidity. And the FSA in London uh, requires all London banks to um, have a, a, a backup liquidity that's held in, you know, very safe, short-term securities. Um, MF Global London had had hundreds of millions of short-term securities in their account at Bank of New York, and they tried to access those securities. Um, basically, you know, I, I go through the whole process in the book, but nobody, in the end, nobody called them back. Um, they, they kept calling personnel over there to release their uh, their backup liquidity um, funds, and they, they couldn't get their money. So in that case, the next morning, they called up um, MS Global in New York and said, you know, we can't get our liquidity in London. We need $175 million away. That's what sparked the, and, and I think somehow it also got to John Corzine, where John Corzine was notified that MF Global London needed cash right away. He called uh, Edith O'Brien and said, now, of course, nobody knows exactly what was said because it wasn't done on a recorded phone line. Um, if it was, we would certainly know about it because the trustees have had access to that for, for a while. So certainly that conversation never happened on a uh, recorded phone line, but John Corzine said, get some money over to London. Mm-hmm. If you believe Edith O'Brien, she said that John Corzine knew she was going to use customer seg funds. If you look at what John Corzine said, he said that he had knew nothing about using customer seg funds. He just ordered them to get funds over to London. So it was in, in that instance where it was clearly Edith O'Brien, you know, in one minute goes to J.P. Morgan Chase, withdraws $200 million worth of customer seg funds, and then minutes later sends $175 million over to MF Global London. J.P. Morgan Chase, Isabel, as, as you mentioned, noticed that, and they said, this really looks like the company is using their customer seg funds. So after that, um, the legal department at J.P. Morgan Chase uh, sent a letter over to MF Global and said, we want you to confirm that you're not using your customer seg funds. Of course, that letter was never signed. It went back and forth a couple times, and there was a lot of confusion in the MF Global offices um, at the time. But in the end, Edith O'Brien refused to sign it. In the book, you also mention like how uh, the role causing played in Goldman's own post '94 um, revival and how he helped to restructure right. them, make it more trade focused. And that time, risk management was something that he was he was also pushing for, but then he had the guidance of Hank Paulson as well. So the, it seems that even though he was in charge of reinventing Goldman, by the time he came to go, uh, Global, he had forgotten all that risk management side of the game. And more importantly, it sounds like he was going into a brokerage with the explicit sort of intention of basically transforming it into a mini 
investment bank and a Goldman Sachs risk-taking institution with its own proprietary trading um, arm and everything, which I find quite extraordinary. And I I don't think I really appreciated that before I read the book because, you know, this was during a time when there was already a crackdown on proprietary trading everywhere. And it caused me to think that this was an acceptable path to... um, Sort of improve the uh, operations of, of and profitability of MF Global. And second, there's, a, there's an anecdote in the book where you say that he was uh, going around the floor um, looking at the broker business and and just sort of saying, and, and it was almost like he wasn't he didn't quite understand what brokers were, and he was sitting there watching them trade, um, to cli- you know, match client orders. And and going oh no no but this should be a trade we should be spending principal more risk here. more why risk why aren't you using the flute and why aren't you using the flows we should be using this insight this knowledge and it's just it, you know it's, and you make out that this is like the insight he'd learned from Goldman Sachs and how you know using fl- customer flows against them is perfectly legit you know um you know in a way you know and I'm just speculating here you know maybe maybe it was a little nos- uh, nostalgic for John Corzine. Um, you know, perhaps, you know, he had a lot of glory years at Goldman Sachs. And, you know, in the 1990s, he was head of fixed income. He became senior partner. Um, and kind of the backstory there is, you know, Goldman Sachs had a spectacular uh, trading year in uh, 1993, 1992, 90, 1993. They had a terrible year in 1994. And that's when they, um, John Corzine, uh, with the help of uh, Hank Paulson, they got together and they and, and they put together a plan to turn Goldman around. And part of that plan was cutting expenses. Was then after um, they kind of got rid of um, some excess personnel, was to hire new staff. Um, part of that um, plan was also speaking with the rating agencies because at the time the rating agencies were about to cut Goldman Sachs's credit rating. And then it also part of the main part of the plan was risk management. Where and, and that was pretty much at the forefront of risk management because, you know, risk management was a topic that was discussed back then, and there were risk managers, but risk management wasn't as large a topic as as it is now in in banks. So, so so Goldman Sachs was really kind of leading the industry then. So you know, as you said, when John Corzine came back to MF Global after being in politics for a number of years, you know, and he had to turn around MF Global. You know, he looked at it as just the, the same as, as turning around Goldman. He didn't notice the world had almost changed. 20 years ago. Right, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and you're right. Yeah, the world had changed. And what's really interesting, too, is that the playbook he pulled out of meeting with the rating agencies, cutting expenses, hiring traders, he used the same Goldman plan. But in the Goldman plan, there was emphasis on risk management. In the MF Global plan, there was no emphasis on risk management. So, you know, certainly um, the, the, the world of Wall Street and banks had, had changed a lot. And, and I think that, you know, I, I think that John Corzine really loved trading. He loved being a trader. Well, you make him, um, you, you also, he, you, he seems a bit addicted to it. Oh, absolutely. I, I had reports from so many personnel who were saying that, you know, that's, you know, they were in meetings with John Corzine and he was... And, and you know, if you're ever in the conference room with a bunch of people, and then you see somebody kind of, you know, looking down and maybe off to the side a little bit, and, and you know that they're they're going through their BlackBerry, um, you know, or their phone, you know, looking at messages, 
And that is completely um, what everybody, you know, was saying. You know, John Corvine was was distracted. He was, you know, looking at um, looking at market quotes constantly. And there's even points where um, I believe J.C. Flowers intervened and, and said to John Corzine, "You know, you're you're not really paying attention as a CEO as much as you should be. Um, you're really doing a lot of trading." And that was, you know, that that was what he wanted to do. He he, he loved being a trader, and you know, even initially about a year ago after the MF Global bankruptcy, uh, news came out that John Corzine was planning on starting a hedge fund, um, which. It'd certainly be much more along the lines of, of what he wants to do as opposed to being a CEO of a bank. Fascinating. I guess we should be wrapping things up. Um, okay, no, that's that's brilliant, Scott. Really, really interesting. And thank you for okay. thank you for coming on. And um, we hope to have you on again at some point in the future. David and uh, Isabella, thank you very much for having me. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and um, I'll come back anytime. Thanks, Scott.